So if you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 17. And flowing out of chapter 16 in Luke, we, we, we were, we've been saying how we've been facing a lot of hard topics, uh, looking at money, at the topic of divorce, of hell, of the judgment of God. Uh, so it hasn't been a, a light section of scripture to, to look at together, uh, but important. And, and really today what we're going to look at is how uh, those truths then that we see about how we are to live before God are actually played out in the, the Christian community. So again, this is Luke chapter 17, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. But I'm hearing a little feedback. I should move this down just a little bit to see if that is any better. Maybe. There we go. <laughs> again, Luke 17, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he, think the ser does he thank the servant because he has done what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that as we study this, um, that you would give us humble hearts to, to recognize that, that we can't boast in ourselves, that we are, we've only done our duty, and that you would show us what it looks like to to live out our Christian lives and community in the church today. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So from time to time, uh, we learn how to respond in different situations, uh, especially when something goes horribly wrong. You, you maybe do fire drills, um, or probably in school you learn what to do if you ever caught on fire. And, you know, the three words, stop, drop, and roll. And of course, as we think about our world, something has gone terribly wrong in the world itself, that we, we see violence and pain and division. And we always want to pretend like the problem is just out there in the world around us. But of course, there's, there's a fire burning, and it's out in the world, but it's also a fire burning 
in our own hearts that are so often in rebellion against God because each and every one of us has sinned and fall short of the, the glory of God. And so then we think, well, what's the solution then if it's not stop, drop, and roll? What's the solution to uh, the fire of sin and rebellion against God that we see in our hearts and in the world around us? And look at what Jesus says in verse 3 of our text. He says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And that's really what we need when we sin, when there uh, is sin in the community of God. And, and it's not the, the stop, drop, and roll, but it's re rebuke, repent, forgive. And, and that's really our outline, what we're going to be looking at. Rebuke, repent, forgive. And so first, when I sin, when we sin, we need to be rebuked. And look in your Bible at verse 3. Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. So it starts with examining your own life. And he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, as we see that word rebuke, it's a really uncomfortable word. We don't like the word rebuke. And I think especially in American society, we don't like the word rebuke. That, that we say, who are you to tell me what to do? Or it's a free country, I can do whatever I want. Or don't impose your arbitrary standard of morality on me. Or all truth is, is relative, so you can't tell anyone else that they're right or that they're wrong. And often, we're even told in our culture that that speech itself can be violence. And so if you were to rebuke someone else and tell them that they are wrong, it's a form of violence that you're doing something wrong, that really the person who rebukes is the one who should be rebuked because they're the one doing something wrong, and we can immediately turn the table if anyone ever confronts us about anything. But according to Jesus here, though, we need to be rebuked when we sin. But you say, well, what does that rebuke look like according to Jesus? Well, there's a, there's a parallel to our text here where Jesus fills out a little bit more of what the rebuke looks like. He doesn't use the word rebuke in the other passage, but it defines it. So if you turn to Matthew 18, this is a famous passage. I'm sure you've probably heard it before if you've been around the, the church. Uh, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says... If your brother sins against you, so he doesn't say that it's just a, a minor annoyance, <laughs> or, uh, but he says that it's sin. They sin against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. And so you could say that that's really the, the first level of rebuke for Jesus, where he's saying that if somebody sins against you, you don't go tell your friends, you don't gossip about it, but you go to the person individually, privately, and address it one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that that's where we have to be really careful that we don't try to work our way around what Jesus is saying here. That sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll say, well, I, I'm just going to ask for a prayer request from my friends to, to know how to deal with this person. Um, but, but we have to be careful of even sharing it in prayer requests to others. We have to be careful uh, of really bringing anyone else into that sphere. Because our, our goal in that first stage of rebuke is to keep the sphere 
of rebuke as small as possible to really guard the dignity of the person who has sinned against us. So if they repent, uh, they really have a, a clean slate that no one else knows, no one else thinks less of them. But then Jesus continues in verse 16. He says, If he does not listen, take one or two brothers, or take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that's then the, the second level of rebuke, where Jesus is saying that, that if you bring, bring two along with you, one or two, that, that in a way that's kind of checking your own ability of, of blind spots. Maybe you were actually misunderstanding something. Maybe you were the one who was in the wrong, but there's in a sense of accountability. Other people are hearing this. Other people are, are seeing this. But then look at what Jesus says if the person still doesn't repent. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And so that's then the third level of rebuke for Jesus, where uh, if the, the person still is refusing to repent or acknowledge sin, um, it comes to the church. It's a matter of formal church discipline. And that's why Jesus says that, that, that if there's still not repentance, that they're treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. And, and that's the, the church's practice of excommunication, where, where people are removed from membership in the church. And you say, well, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, he loved them. He, he served them. And so essentially what formal excommunication in, in the church is saying is that, that someone should be evangelized as a non-believer rather than just rebuked as a believer within the church. And it's something that throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, the church is called to practice. And so that's the, the, the three levels of rebuke that Jesus outlines. But you might say, well, then, what does this actually look like in real life? Well, especially that, that first level, um, there's an example of that in my own life, where uh, when I was in college, I was part of a, a men's Bible study. We went on a weekend retreat. I was having a great time participating in all of the, the Bible studies until the Bible study leader pulled me aside privately and said, Will, you're talking way too much in all of the Bible studies. You're interrupting people. You're not listening to other people. And at first, it's that kind of thing where the defense mechanisms go up. And I think, well, I was just excited about the word of God. Uh, or, you know, the culture of my family is more that people talk all the time. And if you want to talk, you just start talking. <laughs> uh, and so we had more of a culture of interrupting in, in my family, which I was um, used to. But I think that, that thankfully, by God's grace, I had the uh, ability to see, like, yeah, I think that there probably is a degree and a layer of pride and sin that was driving me to, to talk too much, to be prideful in my own ideas, to not listen to others, that I really was sinning against other people. And that sin itself can be dangerous. Because if you turn back in your Bible to our text in Luke 17, and look back at verse 1, Jesus says, Temptations uh, to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And so, according to Jesus, temptations are sure to come. I shouldn't have been surprised that there would be a temptation for me to talk too much, to be prideful in that group. Uh, but 
Jesus also says that, that there's danger for the one who causes other people to sin. And it's very possible that that's exactly what I could have been doing in that group, where you know, maybe I am destroying the dynamic of the Bible study, and then they go gossip about me behind my back. Or they say, well, I don't really want to go to that Bible anyway, and they just stop coming. That my own sin, or what I think is my own private issue, can actually be dangerous to people around us. And that's because, in Scripture, sin actually begets sin. That when, when I sin against you in some way, you're far more likely to then go and sin either against me or against somebody else. That if somebody is mean to you, you're likely to go and be mean back to them. That is sin begetting sin. Or say it's your boss who's mean to you and you can't just be mean back, well then maybe you come back home bitter and you're unkind to your spouse or to your children. And so then that, there's this ripple effect from the sin that, that by your sin, you're causing other people to sin. And that's where sin is actually a little bit like coronavirus or any virus where we think, oh yeah, my cough is just, it's my own individual problem. But then you spread it to somebody else and what was a, a minor cold for you ends up being really serious or life-threatening to somebody else. And that with, with sin, we think, okay, it's not a big deal. It's just my own issue. But then it ripples out and could actually have serious consequences for other people or their families or their friends' families because sin has consequences. It's dangerous for others, but then it's also extremely dangerous, dangerous for ourselves. And that's why Jesus says what he says in verse 2. If you look there in your Bible, he says, it would be better for him, somebody who causes another person to sin, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And these little ones is not just talking about children, but it's talking about believers, others within the church in the covenant community. And that Jesus is saying that, that if, if we cause others to sin that it would actually be better to have a giant millstone for grinding grain to be tied around our neck and to be thrown into the ocean. And you see what's implicit in that. What could be better than being drowned? Or what could be worse, rather? Well, Jesus actually tells us back in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and afterwards have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so you say, well then, what could be worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and being drowned in the sea? And according to Jesus, it's actually facing the righteous, holy judgment of God against sin, that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's why rebuke is actually so important in the church, that, that rebuke, when it's loving and following the, the pattern of mercy of Christ, is actually this saving intervention in the lives of people who are going to potentially wreak havoc in other people's lives and in their own lives. And so again, you say, well, what does this look like? 
Um, and I, I gave the example in my own life of the, the Bible study, and that's probably, you know, in some ways you would say, well, that's a mild example. But in Scripture, we actually see a, an extreme example of what this looks like uh, back in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, and you, you know the story of King David, one of the greatest kings in the history of the world, of Israel. He's called a, a man after God's own heart. But when he should have been going out to war with his men, it says that he, he stayed home. Uh, he was hanging out on his roof. He saw a woman named Bathsheba bathing. And what started off as just lust, his own internal problem, overflowed into adultery, which then overflowed into murder when uh, it turns out that she was pregnant and he had to knock off her husband at the front lines. And you say, well, he, clearly David was a believer. I mean, he wrote a big chunk of even the, the scripture. But he didn't seem to be guilty at all. He was completely hard in his heart going about his business. And that God was merciful enough to send Nathan, the prophet, to rebuke David. And you think, well, that's a scary task, rebuking the king who could have you thrown in prison or have you killed. But he boldly does it. He shows up to rebuke David and, and takes the tactic of, of starting off indirectly. So he tells him basically a parable about a man who had this precious lamb and then a, a more wealthy man took it away, slaughtered it to serve it to his friends. And, um, of course, the, the poor man had nothing. The rich man had everything. And uh, David, when he heard it, became furious and was saying, um, whoever did that would deserve to die. And then in what I think is one of the most um, kind of cinematic moments in the scriptures where you can almost imagine the camera zooming in on David and saying, you, O king, are the man, that it is actually you. And that's what we all need on some level, that that if David himself, a man after God's own heart, could be so blind to his sin, then any of us can be blind to our sin. And if David needed Nathan the prophet to come and point out his sin to rebuke him, then any of us could need rebuke for our sin as well. And so then the question could be is, who is the Nathan in your life? Are you actually appreciating the Nathan that God has placed into your life, and what are the patterns of, of sin, maybe that even people don't know about, that, that where you need that, that life-saving intervention of somebody else in your life? Or maybe, which can sometimes even be harder, maybe God is calling you then to be the Nathan in someone else's life. Of course, we have to be really careful there, uh, because depending on your personality type, you might enjoy rebuking other people. Um, but according to scripture, that we really have to think about whether it's something that has to be addressed. That Christ is not seen in the culture. We should have a culture in the church where we're just constantly rebuking each other all the time. The Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So there are times when the right thing to do is to overlook the offense. But always, whether you're, you're praying for a few seconds and something has to be addressed in the moment, um, or you're taking longer to pray, there needs to be prayer between the, the offense and actually the moment of rebuke. And I, and I think that most often, um, except for extreme situations, it's probably best to take 
24 hours at least to pray um, before you actually speak to someone just to make sure that you're not acting out of anger or hostility. Um, and it's probably then usually not good to wait more than seven days because I think after seven days, sometimes either we forget or we chicken out um, or that the details become fuzzy. But then you say, well, if God actually does call you, you pray about it, and you're saying, yeah, no, I really think that this sin needs to be addressed, then here are just a few practical suggestions to, to keep in mind as you think about this. So the first is always start with your own sin. Um, so there's times where, when then that's not what Nathan did because he wasn't complicit in the situation, but quite often we can see an area where we, we might need to speak to somebody else, but we can see own, our own guilt in certain ways. Uh, and so, you know, lead with that of here's what I've done, please forgive me. And I think that sometimes our own repentance can soften then someone else to hear uh, rebuke. That's the first thing. The second thing is always try to, to sandwich rebuke. Um, and you call it kind of a rebuke sandwich. Um, and that's what the Apostle Paul does in the book of Philemon, where he says, oh, Philemon, you're, you hear all these wonderful things about you and the Lord, and I'm so thankful for you and your walk with the Lord. Oh, by the way, you have a former bondservant who you need to accept back as a brother, and you need to forgive him. And then at the end, he's like, again, I'm so thankful for you and God's work in your life. And, uh, and I think that, that often that's a really good pattern where we're being really intentional to show how thankful we are uh, for others. The third thing is then that never rebuke someone over social media, email, or text. Um, probably never rebuke somebody in written form. I've always heard people say, say nice things in writing, hard things verbally. Um, and, and so ideally it would be face-to-face -face, or at the very least in a phone call where you can actually talk. And that's hard, but I think it's really important. The, the fourth thing is that I think most of these principles of rebuke that we see here and in Matthew 18 only apply with, within the church of believer to believer. Because even in our text, he says, if your brother sins, I'm talking about brothers and sisters in the church. And so we need to be really careful. Yes, there could be wisdom principles of addressing things early in our job or in the secular world, but we need to be really careful of being the, the moral police of our non-Christian friends. That's our call to our non-Christian neighbors is to, to love them, to serve them, to look for opportunities to preach the, the gospel, which could include talking about sin, about the bad news, but bringing it into the, to the good news, um, but just being especially careful with those who do not yet know uh, the Lord. But then finally, to say that, that all of rebuke is hard, uh, none of us like to be rebuked. Some people like to rebuke and need to repent of that, uh, but none of us, very few people like to rebuke. Uh, but it's something that is so important for the culture of a church. And it's something I long for for, for Hope Church, uh, that there could be this, this loving, winsome culture of rebuke where, we're, where these small little things that can, can irritate relationships are, are dealt with early on before anyone else has to know. And if the church really did that, um, it would prevent so many church splits, so many problems that that so much grief in church history could have been prevented if people would follow the principles that Jesus laid out here. And so that's the, the first word, rebuke, uh, that we need to be rebuked. 
But here's the second word, repent, that when we sin, we need to repent. Look again at verse 3. Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, sometimes people think of repentance as basically just saying you're sorry. And it's not just, that's not quite as simple as that. Or um, Jerry Falwell Jr. um, recently, you know, if you've followed some of the news of his situation, he told somebody in an interview, I'm going to try to be a good boy. And and I think, again, that's not exactly the, the way that we talk about repentance. That's, that's not the way we speak in true repentance. That if you turn back to David in 2 Samuel 12, that after he was rebuked by Nathan, he, it, it crashed in of what he had done. And he didn't just see what he had done to others. He didn't just say, oh, well, I'm sorry, or I've been a bad boy. I'm going to try to do better. Um, But in verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you say, well, what does that mean? Because you see how he sinned against Bathsheba, how he sinned against Uriah, her husband, how he sinned against his entire nation. But how did he sin against the Lord? What is he talking about? And really, according to Scripture, all sin on some level, at the right root, you could say, is ultimately against God. That when I sin against you, I'm sinning, one, against the law of God, but I'm also sinning against somebody created in the image of God. And so what I'm doing is then an affront to the holy and righteous God of the universe. And that's why then our repentance starts with God first and foremost. And if you were to look at Psalm 51, that's... Um, David's prayer of confession to the Lord, reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba, that he says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That he recognized my sin, first and foremost, is against you. Or in Psalm 32, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I do not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that's where repentance starts, first and foremost, with God. But of course, once we've repented to God and we experience his forgiveness, that's where we actually have this resource of strength to begin to repent to others. Because God promises that when we repent of our sins to him, that he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we can experience the fullness of forgiveness and hope and life from Christ. And, but, of course, we, when we repent to others, we don't know how they're going to respond. And that's why repentance is so hard. Will they forgive us? Will they yell at us? Will they try to make us feel worse? Will they go tell all of their, their friends? Will it destroy our, our reputation? Um, and so we can be afraid, but if we have the identity rooted in Christ then we can actually have boldness to repent to people around us. And we can even have the boldness to repent quickly because the initial reaction when we're rebuked is to try to find the place of hypocrisy in the other person. To say, well, I know that you have a log in your own eye while you're trying to take the speck out of my 
I. And probably a good percentage of rebuke that we experience is probably 95% false and 5% true. That, that quite often when people you know, say something true to us, we can figure out all ways that, that it's not true. But I think that, that what, what we see if we're really rooting our identity in Christ is we don't have to worry about the 95% where we're right in the situation, that we can really focus on the, the 5% where we're wrong and be quick to repent and to admit our sin and our failing against God and against our neighbor. And so that's the, the second word, that uh, when we sin, we need to repent. But here's then the, the third and the, the final word, forgiveness, that, that when we sin, we need to be forgiven. Verse 3, he says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, many religions teach what you could call a a works-based view of forgiveness, where uh, forgiveness is something you earn. So to God, maybe it's it's that you sacrifice a a chicken, or or you try, or as we often talk in our culture, you you think about a moral kind of uh, measure where you try to pile more good things to outweigh the bad things that you've done, and maybe if you do enough good, then you can somehow earn forgiveness in the end. But according to verses 7 to 10 in our text, in Luke 17, that's actually impossible because Jesus tells this parable about this servant who's out in the field, and the servant can't come in and demand a place at the master's table because he says that he's only done his duty and, and, and that when we have done all that is required of us, he says that we say we've on, we're only unfaithful servants, unprofitable servants, that we've only done our duty. And that it's the same with God, that when we, when we are seeking forgiveness before him, if we try to then pile on more and more good things to outweigh the bad, uh, that, that it's, we say we're only unworthy servants, we've only done what is our duty, that we haven't even begun to pay off the full weight of our debt to God through our works. You can think about it like trying to pay off the the national debt working at McDonald's while still trying to support your family. That you're doing everything just to to make to make live, that you have nothing extra to be able to pour into something else. And that's why Jesus came in, into the world um, and that he did his duty fully, went beyond his duty, that he lived the perfect life, free from sin that we couldn't live, never did live, uh, that he took the, the full weight of God's wrath on himself in our place, that he had the, the millstone of the, the wrath of God put around his neck. He was drowned in the sea of, of God's judgment so that us who had caused other people to sin can be forgiven and accepted. And so when we then look to Christ, when we look at the forgiveness we receive when we repent in him and trust in him and that righteousness is counted to him, uh, to him and his, uh, our, or our, sorry, his righteousness is counted to us and our sin is counted to him, that that's where then we get the motivation to start to forgive others. Because that's what Jesus is talking about uh, as he moves on to verse 4, that if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns seven times saying, I repent, 
you must forgive him. And that's the kind of forgiveness that's actually impossible or seems impossible on the surface. Uh, because how can we actually forgive like that? And the idea of forgiving over and over again, not just seven times, but that's that number of perfection in Scripture. He's saying that over and over again, 70, seven times 70. Um, as many times as others repent to continue to forgive. And, and we say, well, is that kind of forgiveness even right? Is that just being a doormat for somebody else's sin? Is that just being taken advantage of? How can we actually forgive like this? And that's where we start with God. That, that forgiveness also begins with God, just as repentance starts with God. That we, we remember how much God has forgiven us. I mean, think of how many times you have sinned in your life and all those sins being forgiven through the blood of Christ. And knowing that each and every one of us continues to struggle with sin, think of how many sins God will forgive in the future out of his mercy freely, even as we continue to test his mercy and his love. And so with that incredible measure of forgiveness that God lavishes upon us in Christ, then how can we ever withhold forgiveness from somebody else? That, that it, it wouldn't be right. But of course, this does raise a question. And I mean, this passage raises so many difficult questions. But as we look at the language, is he saying that, that we only need to forgive after somebody repents or before somebody repents. And if you were in our Wednesday night Bible study this spring, we actually had a really interesting conversation about this, about you know, how does forgiveness fit into repentance? And, um, and after that discussion, I'd reflected on it, and I, and I think that it's important to distinguish two different kinds of forgiveness in Scripture, that the, the first kind of forgiveness isn't contingent on repentance. It's not dependent on what somebody else does. And that first kind of forgiveness is a posture of our hearts. Um, and even if somebody has sinned against us in a really severe way, through the gospel, through prayer, through looking at the mercy of God, to let go of anger, to let go of bitterness against that person, to be in a heart position where if that person ever did repent, where you would be actually able to sincerely offer Forgiveness, And I think that that heart posture of letting go of anger and bitterness is itself a kind of forgiveness. And it's not wrong to call that forgiveness. But I don't think that that's exactly the nuance that Jesus is using in our passage here. Because he says, if your brother sins, forgive him. Not before your brother sins or despite the repentance of your brother. Uh, but he says, if he repents, Forgive him. And so there is a, a type of forgiveness that is really dependent on the repentance of the other person. And I think that that kind of repentance is very closely related to reconciliation, really reconciling what was broken in a relationship. And if you think about it, that's the kind of repentance we experience from God, where he is ready with open arms to receive any sinner who repents of his sin and trusts in him for salvation. But we're not forgiven, accepted, reconciled until we repent and trust in 
Christ. And that there's the analogy then for us that we're, we're forgiven, we're ready to forgive. But then there is a forgiveness then that is offered when people actually repent and turn. And I think you could think of this, um, what Jesus is describing here in our text, of, of imagining a Christian uh, who he's in, living in some grievous pattern of, of sin. Uh, somebody comes to him individually, then the next phase of Matthew 18, that people, two come along, and then it becomes a matter of church discipline, and he still refuses to repent. And he's uh, excommunicated, he's uh, removed from membership within the church, barred from the, the Lord's Supper. And at that point, the church can't be angry, they can't harbor bitterness, that they need to be in that position of that first kind of forgiveness for the, for the person. And so that, Lord willing, when the person repents, they're willing to, to welcome him back with open arms, to, to receive him fully, to rejoice in his repentance. And if he does it again, to forgive and repents, to forgive him a second time. And if he does it again and repents, to forgive him a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time and a seventh time, on and on and on. And it, and it seems extreme, but that's the kind of forgiveness each and every single believer receives from the Lord. And so that's the kind of forgiveness we're called to offer to others around us. But of course, that doesn't mean that sin can't still have consequences, that you can have real forgiveness, but then the sinner can still face certain temporal consequences for sin. And here you could imagine a, a, a pastor who, who has an affair and repents of his sin. When he repents, the church is obligated, according to Scripture, to forgive him, to not hold on to anger or bitterness. But the church is not obligated to take him back as their pastor. Uh, that trust can be something that's built over time. And so there can be, for him, then, this recognition of the consequence of the sin, but still experience forgiveness. Or it could be the same for his wife. I mean, we, we talked about the topic of uh, divorce a few uh, weeks ago and how adultery is a biblical grounds for divorce. And so if he repents to her, according to our text here, uh, Luke 17, 3, that she's obligated to forgive him if he repents. But then that could mean that, that she tries to reconcile the marriage while forgiving him. Or maybe there's so much violation of trust, she moves on away from the marriage while forgiving him. Um, and that part of the response for him, I think, of, of true repentance is being willing to take the consequence for sin. Just as somebody who, say, committed murder could repent, experience forgiveness from God, even forgiveness from others, but might understand the justice of the consequence of, of taking some kind of civil punishment for his sin. And, and I think that that's the same, that we're willing to take that, to, to pay restitution, to do what is necessary as a fruit of repentance, experiencing forgiveness, but maybe still facing consequences for our sin. But as we wrap up today, and as with just all that we're, we've been saying, that, that this, is, this is hard. <laughs> um, this is really, really hard to live out in a practical way in the church and in, in Christian community. And I think that that's why in verse 5, the disciples say, increase our faith. Lord, we don't have enough faith to do this. Because it's true that naturally, we don't have enough faith to respond in humility and listen when others rebuke us. 
uh, that we don't have enough faith to, to really know that we have been forgiven when we repent and not to just hold on to our guilt and our shame. Uh, we don't have enough faith so often to be able to truly forgive others and to extend the kind of forgiveness that, that we have received from the Lord. And that's why we're saying, Lord, strengthen our faith. Give us the, the, the strength to be able to actually live this out. And, and ultimately, always, the way to have to strengthen our faith is to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because when our eyes are on him, we're able to receive the rebuke without being crushed. And when our eyes are on Christ, we're able to experience the, the forgiveness, to know um, that we can have a clean slate in, in the Lord Jesus. And that when our eyes are on Christ, we actually can begin to slowly extend that true radical forgiveness to those around us. And that's what we need when we sin, when others sin. It's not the, the stop, drop, and roll, but it's the rebuke, repent, forgive. So let's go to the Lord and ask this for all of us.